The reading today is from Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 6, and uh, you can find that in page 740 within your church Bibles. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Um, As Thomas said, my name is Luke. I'm one of the interns here at St. Saviour's, and it's a real privilege to be here um, and to be looking at this passage together with you. Um, It's probably one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament and definitely one of the most exciting. And we're going to be continuing on our series on Isaiah. And you may have noticed, if you took a look in the Bibles, that this little section is the fourth servant song. We've looked at some of the others, and it's called The Suffering and Glory of the Servant. Um, Just in case you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, I'll I'll rehash a little bit of the context for you. So um, Isaiah is uh, predicting a time in the future where there would be this servant who would suffer and then be glorified. And and we now, looking back, know that it is in Jesus, that the entirety of this prophecy has been fulfilled. I really encourage you to read the whole section later. We can only look at a small part now, but it's remarkable how the intricate details are fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Isaiah was writing, what, six, seven hundred years before it even happened? And so that's what we're going to be looking at now. But I hope you'll humor me with a little thought experiment just as we begin. Can you close your eyes and imagine with me? Try not to go to sleep. It's imagining, not dreaming. Imagine that you've washed up on a desert island. Your memory has been totally wiped, and you have never heard anything about religion whatsoever. You've never heard the name of Jesus, Muhammad, Vishnu, anyone. You don't know anything about religion. And your task now is to come up with a god for yourself and maybe the local tribe of monkeys or whatever. You come up with a god for yourself. And the question is, what is that god like? I'm just going to give you a little bit of time to talk to the people next to you. What is the god like that you are going to imagine if you know nothing about religion? Go. 20 seconds or so. Great. Well, hopefully that's been enough time. We shouldn't need that much to come up with a few false gods. (laughs) There's so much creativity. Great. So hopefully you've come up with a few ideas of what the god would be like that you and the monkeys would be worshipping. I did this with a a few people that I know beforehand as I was preparing. And um, 
some people come up with some very strange ideas. Like there was one man who, uh, his God was just a giant rock. You're like, great. <laughs> wasn't really what I was looking for. I'm trying to tease stuff out of this, but brilliant. Even if you've been smoking the funny stuff and you've got this God as a massive rock, I am sure that almost no one in this room, I'd, be, I'd love to know if you did, went, ah, oh, my God. Yeah, the one that I imagine, if I don't know anything, is going to be dead. Did anyone do that? Yeah, somehow I didn't think so. So when, when we were doing this beforehand, some of the ideas that we came up with, and probably you have as well, are things like, well, God, if I'm going to imagine a God, he's got to be really big and powerful, right? That's just what God is surely like. Maybe in the elections, you look to people like David Cameron, Ed Miliband, you think, yeah, power, that's it. I want God to be a bit like that, but maybe with a brain as well. And, <laughs> and you think, yeah, this, this is what it's all about. I picked them both. Uh, this, this is what it's all about. Maybe instead you think, actually, the thing that is most important to me is love. I want like a cross between Mother Teresa and my mum, but a lot bigger. That is my God. He's going to be like that. And he won't get so annoyed when I forget to call. <laughs> Sorry, mum, if you're listening to the recording. Um, maybe instead you thought, my God has got to be beautiful. You look at the celebs, that's it. He's going to be beautiful, and that is the pinnacle of what I want out of someone I'm going to worship. At the very least, he's got to be happy. He's God. He can do what he wants. Isn't that going to make him happy? And surely, because he's God, everyone's going to love him or at least like him a little bit. And yet, when we look at our passage, that isn't actually what we see at all. I said that none of us would think of a God who was crucified instinctively. And um, if we think of a God who is powerful, and I definitely believe God is powerful, it's certainly not in the way that we would think. You see, I think God has revealed himself to us most, uh, most primarily in the person of Jesus, and we see it most clearly at the cross, which is what this passage is looking forward to. And yet, it doesn't seem to fit my idea of power that this servant would die. And if we think about a God who's going to be loving, that's not how I imagined it would be either. It doesn't look very loving just to sit there and bleed. It doesn't fit the categories. And two, we read in verse two that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so, so he isn't beautiful and that one's gone. Is he at least well-liked? Well, no, he's despised and rejected by men. Happy, uh, maybe? Jesus is a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And so it seems that just from the very beginning when we look at this passage, all the ideas that I naturally come up with about God are flipped on their head, or at least very different to what I imagine. And just, I think, looking at why, why is, this, why is there this gap between what I imagine about God naturally and who has revealed himself to be is a real key to unlocking what this passage is talking about. You see, I think that... Um, each of us basically either looks at ourselves and think, what am I like? Or what would I want to be like? Put it on some cosmic steroids and think, ah, that's probably what God is like. The Bible um, refers to this as idolatry. It's where we make something else God instead of him. 
And so it's like this de-godding of God, and I put either myself or something else in his place. And that's why when I'm imagining him, it's no surprise that lots of our ideas are totally wrong, and we need to come back to this passage to see what it is all about. And you know what, most often when we're doing this de-godding of God, at least I tend to put myself in his place instead. I like to think that I am the one really who is God. Long live the king, because the old king is dead. I want to be in that position. And you'll probably be familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The serpent says to Eve, first temptation ever, it's going to give us a clue as to what sin is really like. First temptation ever, what does, she, what does the serpent say? Take, eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And so fundamentally, I think the human, the human problem, the, the issue with the human condition is that we set ourselves up over against God and what the Bible calls sin. And our passage refers to it like this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And so I've, rather than follow the ways that God would have me follow and believe the things about him that he would have me believe and about myself and the world, instead I go my own way like a sheep. Martin Luther um, refers to sin as being man curved in on himself. So rather than being, look at what God is really like, each of us just looks at ourselves. Yeah, but look at this. This is great. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's a very good substitute. But I think the, the fundamental problem with imagining God differently is that it leads to two really dangerous assumptions, and we're just going to look at this for the rest of our time together, the two assumptions I think that this leads us to make, this what the Bible calls sin or the de-godding of God, is that it makes us think that either A, God doesn't care about sin, this turning away and doing our own thing, or that B, even if he does care, we can somehow earn our way back up into his favor. And they're the two things we're going to look at and see whether they're actually true, because I think they're the assumptions that this leads us to make. So number one, does God care about sin or not? And I don't think we can trust our natural imaginings about God because we've already done the thought experiment. It didn't turn out so well. So what does the Bible say about whether God cares about sin? I think that the ringing answer is yes. Yeah, he really cares about sin. And it, it logically makes sense. So imagine a father with some children, two daughters, say, If someone is doing something evil to his daughters, if they're being harmed in any way or they're harming each other, how would the father react? I don't think he's just going to sit there and be like, that's fine, don't don't worry about that, I'm sure it'll be okay. No, he's going to be filled with passion to defend and protect his children. And you see, the, the effects of this turning away, the effects of this sin is so devastating for us. I don't think God cannot be serious about love, and therefore he has to be really serious about this sin. We read in Romans that the penalty for sin, the wages of sin, is death. God is super serious. And so it seems like if this applies to all of us, and if this verse is true, that we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us have turned to his own way, if I have turned my own way, I'm in a serious situation. I need some kind of solution. 
And so on to assumption number two. Surely I can work my way back into God's favor and everything will be hunky-dory again. That's how it works, isn't it? I talk to a lot of um, my friends who don't yet know Jesus and this is the way, if you just scratch beneath the surface a tiny bit, that they think Christianity works. Isn't Christianity basically about us all being a good boy or a good girl? Just being good enough to get heaven and maybe looking down a bit on the people who aren't as good as we are. Is that fundamentally what Christianity is about? Now, I don't know whether you've, you've ever tried to do this. Um, I th- believe me, I've done it, done it countless times where you think, man, I've really messed up. Like, I've really done this badly. And so from now on, I'm just going to sort my life out. Everything's going to be fine because from now on, I'm going to be perfect. I'm never going to do anything wrong again. I'm never going to turn my own way. And it doesn't last for more than, hopefully more than an hour for some of us, but not for me. It just continually, in the future, I know I cannot help but do wrong. I can't do anything about that. And I tell you what, no amount of crossing old ladies over the street is going to do anything about the past either. And so I'm caught between a rock and a hard place where I can't seem to earn my way into God's favor. It seems to be impossible for me, which is bleak. But the good news is that the Bible has this concept of substitution. It's amazing solution to the problem of the human condition, sin, are turning away. And substitution is essentially where something else comes into our place. A little bit like football, but in the Bible, almost always, it's something dies so that something else doesn't have to. And just to illustrate this, if you've got a Bible and you like doing this, turn with me to Exodus 12. I'm not going to quote it, but it's really good reading, starting at about verse 12-ish. Maybe many of you will remember it. It's the Passover. It's one of the most significant things in the history of Israel. And um, if you've seen the films as well, Moses is um, God's chosen servant, and he's going to liberate the people from Egypt where they've been oppressed and enslaved. And God sends 12 plagues to try and get Pharaoh to agree, let my people go, you remember that. The 12th plague is the angel of death flies over and he'll kill all the firstborns unless, God says, you sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood on the doorway. And then if, when the angel sees the blood, he'll pass over the house and the firstborn will be spared. And so that is exactly what they do. The lamb dies. And you can, you can imagine it, can't you? The firstborn wakes up the next morning. He walks into the living room. He sees the hearth and the lamb, or the remains of the lamb, smoldering in it. And he could rightly think, that lamb has died so that I live. And that is what substitution is all about. But that doesn't really help us. A lamb 2,000, or well, way more than that, 1,000 years ago, doesn't help us. But if you go to Matthew 26 or some other place where we talk about the Lord's Supper. The link is, what what are they celebrating? They go into the upper room, Jesus and the 12 disciples. What are they celebrating? Okay, (laughs) they're celebrating the Passover, the thing we've just talked about. They're having the Passover meal in the upper room. And and we, we talk a lot, quite rightly, about the bread and the wine that Jesus passed around, but we never really talk about what they're missing. It's almost scandalous. The thing that we should have at a Passover meal is a Passover lamb, right? That is what the Passover is all about. And there is no lamb. And none of the disciples go, I'm sorry, Jesus, what's going on here? 
Because you remember Jesus' words. When he passes the wine around, he says, this is my blood shed for you. He passes the bread, he breaks it, and says, this is my body broken for you. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for them. You see, it's no surprise that in John 2, we read that John, the first time he sees Jesus, goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because the ultimate solution to our condition is not a lamb that died at Passover, it's not trying to earn God's favor, but that Jesus has died so that we don't have to. That Jesus has died and taken the fullness of our sin on himself. And so we read in our passage again and again and again, which is why we need to know what sin is to understand this. He has taken our infirmities, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed because the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus has offered us the solution. He offers to die in our place so that we can live. There's a reason that in every great story there is that theme running through. Dare I say it, some of you may have read Harry Potter, that is the theme. Someone dies so that Harry can live. I was reading Divergent the other day. Again, same theme. Because the theme of the cosmos is that someone has died so that you and I can live and know fullness of life in Jesus. And that's what we're going to be doing today in the Batson pool that I've been so trying to avoid while I'm wandering over there. You notice what the Batson candidates are going to be doing. They're going to stand in the water, fall, and then be lifted up. And I think as a sign to us of what has gone on spiritually and a seal to them that they have united with Christ by faith, died, come up through the waters of judgment and now live a new life in Jesus. But going back to our second thing, can we earn this? Is this any way something that we do? Notice what they don't do, which is literally anything. You stand there, you fall over and someone else picks you back up. There isn't any hint of, oh, if I do this, if I read my Bible in the morning, then I'll be slightly more baptized than if I just stood there. Or back in the Passover, there's, there's no hint that the boy, the firstborn son, would go, oh, okay, so the lamb has died, I get that. But I'm going to go inside, and for the rest of the evening, I'm going to be a really, really good boy, and maybe I'll wake up slightly less dead tomorrow. That's not it at all. He does absolutely nothing and is saved. They just fall over and get taken back, and that is it. And that, that is the good news. It's not anything about what you or I do. And so that is where peace is. We've read that um, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. Now, I don't know whether you ever feel like this. I do, and so I assume that some other people do. I don't know whether you ever feel the weight of guilt, like, oh man, I'm just not what I know that I could be or should be. How could God ever love me? What's this God stuff got to do with me when I know what I'm like and thank him that you don't? How could God love me? Well, hey, it's nothing to do with me. It's all about what God has done for me. And so, do you feel guilty? Irrelevant. 
Do you feel like, oh, how could God love me? Irrelevant. Do you have confidence in that? It's, it's about Christ and how he has died for us. And so we can have this peace of conscience. We can have peace with God and know his love for us because he has died so that we can live. We can have peace with each other because there's no more this vying of, oh, yeah, well, I know I'm all right because I'm better than her. Or I know that I'm doing okay because I'm better than him, him, and him, and therefore God's probably going to love me. Maybe this situation is close to you where you wake up and think, oh, I haven't even thought about God in the last few days. I haven't Bible read. I haven't really prayed either. I'm going to have to start doing that loads more so that God's going to love me today. That's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. We can have confidence in his love only because of Jesus. And so just as I finish, my question is, if this in any way resonates with you, if, if you, like me, have, are in a place or been in a place where you're like, I just don't have confidence in God's love. I don't know surety of purpose, or I'm burdened by guilt, by this feeling of constantly needing to be better for God, even if I don't know him. I just know that something is wrong, and I can't fix it. Then hear the words of Jesus. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, and I will give you rest. I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to do today. It doesn't matter whether you've literally never heard anything about what I've said or not. You've never heard even who Jesus is, and you've just walked in. That's the invitation that he's giving to you. Come to me, and I will give you rest. I'll give you the solution to mankind's great problem in my life offering my own life. And it doesn't matter whether you have heard this 20 times, and well, you've heard this 200 times, you can give this talk way better than I could. This is just as much for you. But Jesus says, today, come to me and give me rest. If you're a student who's just about to go off, this is for you every day. Let's not pretend that we don't need this every day. Come to me and I will give you rest. I need that life. And if you're going to someplace else, you need to take this with you. Isn't this what our um, course mates and our work colleagues need to hear? The great rest that we can have in Jesus. And so that is what I want to leave you with, essentially. Jesus' great call. He has offered himself for us, and so let's have faith and say, yeah, I'm going to come to you and have rest in him. Thanks. I think Tom is going to come up and do the rest of our baptisms. Thank you so much.